Well, thank you, Pastor Bill. Boy, what a delight to be uh, with you again tonight. And uh, I just want to say I've really enjoyed, I really have enjoyed my times getting to know uh, your pastor, my friend, better. Uh, I've been friends, friends with Bill and Retta for probably 13 years when they were down in Orlando. And, uh, and I've just considered him a dear friend, but haven't spent time with him like you do in a car, you know, dry, driving two and a half hours each way. And and we talked the whole time, going, going down and back each way. I mean, I bet there was a total of about 10 minutes total of silence in the car, you know. So we did a lot of chatting, and it was just great to get to know him well. He's a wonderful man. I know you know that, but I've just gotten to know him better, and, and it's been a delight. So thank you, Bill, for the privilege of, of uh, just our friendship and getting to know you better and having, you here, having me here at your church. And, uh, and I had a wonderful time with Rachel coming down tonight, so that was fun. So it really... Uh, Made, made the trips uh, very enjoyable. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at uh, one of the most difficult areas, really, for uh, Christian people as they face the questions that come. And, some, and oftentimes these questions are uh, questions that we raise ourselves, that, that is, Christian people, of course, also have the question of, of uh, the problem of evil uh, as suffering happens or difficulties happen in our lives or the lives of friends. These questions come up. And, um, but, but especially when they come from critics from outside, boy, it has a, it has a, uh, a forcefulness that is uh, penetrating uh, when it comes from a critic of the faith, because this is a very difficult thing. God is good, and yet there's this evil in the world, and, and how could this be? Uh, l- let me just say one thing before we actually get into the discussion. You all have handouts, by the way, for tonight? Everyone have one? All right, very good. The ushers have done a great job. Uh, getting these out each time. I appreciate that very much. Uh, My comment is this. um, Whenever you face a question from a critic uh, in in regard to any area of the Christian faith, in any apologetical area, there is a tendency or a temptation that we feel to try to come up with an answer that will satisfy the critic. And let me just tell you right now, that is the wrong path to travel. You, You never want to have as your motivation to come up with an answer that will satisfy the critic. Because in all likelihood, what you'll do in the process is compromise the truth in order to get an answer that's satisfying to Mr. X out there. Uh, And and this is, I mean, honestly, this is the pathway that that Rob Bell has gone. People like Rob Bell have gone. They, They end up compromising the faith so that the culture out there will say, oh, yes, that makes sense, or yes, I can understand that. So, so what we, rather the path we have to take is the path of faithfulness to God's word, understanding that that may or may not be satisfying. In many cases, it won't be satisfying to people outside of the faith. Uh, but goodness, uh, we should know that that's what we should expect. Uh, we, we read in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 that the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So I I just would encourage you not to have as your main instinct and main drive, let's find out what what answer we can give that will satisfy them. Now, if the answer does satisfy them, probably that means the Holy Spirit is at work in their life, and that's a great thing uh, when that happens. But but we really have to have as our, our primary goal to be faithful to God and to His Word and to con- construct an answer that is, uh, uh, is in keeping with what we know to be true. 
and, uh, and, and then we just, I mean, honestly, let the chips fly. Uh, you know, let, let things uh, uh, develop the way they do, given the fact that the truth is now out there. If the Spirit is, work, is at work in their hearts, they may respond positively. If they're hardened to the things of God, they may uh, reject what you say. And, uh, and you just say, before God, it's in your hands. All right. Well, this evening, this is one of the most difficult issues, and it is for Christian people as well. The problem of evil stated, I have right there on the top of the page, is really very simple. It goes way back to the early church. You find, you find uh, uh, Augustine dealt with the problem of evil. You find it all the way through church history. Uh, David Hume in the Enlightenment was one of the main uh, proponents of this problem and raised it to a high level. Uh, and, uh, and here is essentially what the problem of evil is. How can there be evil in a world created by an all-good and all-powerful God? If God is all-good, well, then He wouldn't want there to be evil. And if God is all-powerful, then He could prevent evil. But there is evil. Therefore, God must not be all-good or all-powerful. In other words, there cannot be the God of the Bible who is both all-good and all-powerful since there is evil in the world. So it's really one of the main arguments that has been used in the past several hundred years to support atheism. God cannot exist because there is evil in the world. If He were good, He wouldn't want it. If He's powerful, He could get rid of it. But, but, there, but there it is. So He must not be here. This good, powerful God must not exist. Well, the, the biblical response to this is to say that yes, there is evil in the world, and yes, an all-good and all-powerful God, all God is in fact in control of, what that, uh, of that evil and what takes place. He is in complete control of it, and as we'll see as we move along here later this evening, that His control of it is for ultimate good purposes that He has. In other words, God does not control that evil for the evil's sake itself, but He controls that evil for the good that will ultimately come about through the evil and not apart from it. <clears throat> but is it true that God has control of the evil that takes place in the world as well as the good? Indeed, this is true, and we find this taught in the Scriptures. I put down a couple of passages for you under this heading of spectrum texts. If you look under Roman numeral 2a, spectrum texts, and these texts simply refer to the fact that it indicates God has control over everything that is good, all the things that, all the blessings of life, uh, goodness, the, the health and the joy and the, and the, uh, the satisfaction of life comes from God. Uh, J James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And we have no difficulty accepting that, do we? That God is in control of all the good things that happen in life. But the other side of the spectrum is also true, that God has complete control of all of the horrible things that happen in life. All, all, of, all of the suffering and the pain and the affliction, God has ultimate control of that as well. Take a look at, with me at a couple passages that show that God has control of both sides of the spectrum. Deuteronomy 32 39, for example, this is in Moses' song that he wants the people of Israel to learn before they go into the promised land, a song that basically reminds them of God's faithfulness despite their unfaithfulness and that God will be with them. 
Even though they have turned away from him over and over again, God has committed himself to his people. And here's how he brings this to an end. In verse 39, we read God speaking through Moses says, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. It is I who have wounded and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. So isn't it interesting that he establishes the fact at the beginning of that verse, see now that I am he, I am God. There is no one besides me. He He establishes the exclusivity of his being God. There's no one else who is God other than me. And then he goes on to tell us who he is, what he, what he is capable of doing, uh, what, what his control looks like as God. And it includes, very clearly, both sides of the spectrum. It is I, the one who alone is God, it is I who put to death and give life. It is I who wound and heal. No one can deliver from my hand. And it's interesting to me that he even puts the, uh, the negative side of this up front. Because I think he wants us to see what is more difficult for us to see. And that is that yes, indeed, the one true and living God has control of all of the horrible things that happen as well as all of the good things that happen. He wants us to know that he as God has control of those. Now, by the way, I I, I am sure for many of you listening to this, that this is a difficult thing to hear. Just think for a moment, though, what the alternative is. If God is not the one in control of suffering and affliction, natural disasters as well as evil things that people do to one another, if God is not in control of those things, then, you know what I'm going to ask next, who is? Who is? I mean, it is a frightening question to ask that. Which would you rather have? One who is infinitely wise, perfectly good, just in all of his ways, who will not permit anything to happen that does not fulfill what he has designed to bring about his perfect plans. Which would you rather have? That one in control of the evil that takes place or or Satan, demons, Wicked people, chance forces of nature? I mean, honestly, if that's the world we live in, bunker, un, you know, I'm sorry, hunker under, you know, and, and f- find a shelter somewhere and, and wait it out because there's no assurances that uh, you're, you're going to be okay. If Satan is in control, demons are in control, wicked people are in control, capricious events happen that are in no one's control, horrible forces of nature happen, Oh no, what comfort there is to know. I am God, there is no other, there's no one besides me, and I control both of these, and I am good. I am good. You can trust me. You know that if I have ordained it, I've I've ordained it for good. My goodness, it makes such a difference. Look also at Isaiah 45. This is one of the strongest passages in the Bible under this category of spectrum texts where we see that, in fact, God declares 
He alone is God, and he controls both sides of the spectrum. Look with me at verses 5 to 7 of Isaiah 45. Again, I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you. The you there is a reference to Cyrus that's, that is mentioned, uh, he's mentioned earlier in this passage. The, the one who will deliver Israel back to the land of, uh, of Israel. Uh, I will gird you, Cyrus, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Wow, what an introduction, right? We get the point, don't we? He alone is God. Now, what is he like? Look at verse 7. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Isn't that amazing? Now, two things I want you to observe. I have both of them noted on your handout here. Two things I want you to observe in that verse, 40, uh, verse uh, 7 of chapter 45. The first one is this, that in the two couplets that he has there of light and darkness and calamity and well-being, in these two couplets, he uses a weaker and a stronger verb in each of the couplets. Uh, by, by weaker and stronger verb, I mean this. Uh, the weaker verb is a verb used of what God does here, but it's something that we can do too. We can do also. God forms that's one of the Hebrew words here. We too can form. It's the word yatsar. And uh, it's used, for example, in Genesis 2-7 of God who takes the dust of the ground and forms it into a man, breathes, it, breathes into him the breath of life. So, so God forms, but a potter, that word is also used of a potter who can form something. So the point is this. Yes, here God forms, but we too can form. God causes, another Hebrew word used here of, of what God does, we too can cause, all right? So this is the weaker verb simply because it's something that God does, but we can do that too. It's a verb that we also can do the same thing God does, all right? But he uses another verb in each of the couplets that is the stronger verb. And the reason I call it stronger is simply because it's a verb used in the Old Testament only with God as its subject. Only God creates that's how we have the word here in English. The, the Hebrew word is bara. It's the word used in Genesis 1.1. Barashit, bara, Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here is a word in the Old Testament that is exclusively used with God as subject. He baras, we do not bara. Now look at your Bibles, my friends, and notice which side of the spectrum he uses the term bara with. Isn't it shocking, to be honest? So, yes, indeed, verse 7, he forms light. That's a word, that's a verb that we can do those things too. He forms light, but he baras darkness, creates darkness. He causes well-being. We too can cause things to happen. He causes well-being, but he baraz calamity. 
you know, honestly, when I first saw this, this was many years ago, but when I first saw this, I, I did a double take. I, I just, I rubbed my eyes, I said, I can't be reading this right. I must be mixing this up. Surely it says God forms light, but, I, I'm sorry, God, God forms darkness, but he creates light. You know, he, he uh, um uh, causes causes uh, a calamity, but he creates uh, well-being. Surely that's what it must be. So I looked again. You know what? It, it is just this way in the Hebrew too. And it's just a, an amazing thing to realize. This is what God is wanting us to see: is that He has absolute control. Now, don't don't misunderstand. God, of course, God creates light. I mean, the fact that he uses forms light here is not to say that he doesn't create light, but we already know that, don't we? We know that from Genesis 1, let there be light, he proclaims. So indeed, God creates light. Indeed, God creates well-being. We know that, but to make the point that I also, as God, have equal, absolute control over the evil things that happen in this world, I'm going to use that exclusive verb that's used only of me, I'm going to use that on the negative side. So I form light and create darkness. Cause well-being, he causes well-being, but he creates calamity. Here's the second observation from, uh, from the Hebrew that is here. The second is this, that the terms that are used in the second couplet in particular uh, in, in verse 7, the second couplet, that he causes well-being and creates calamity. Those two words in Hebrew are the strongest words available in the Hebrew language for their respective opposite realities. On the one hand, he causes shalom. You've all heard that Hebrew word. He causes shalom, well-being. I mean, it's a word that communicates all is well in life joy and happiness, life at its best, that's shalom. So God causes shalom, but he baraz, wow, ra. It's a very simple Hebrew word, R-A is the transliteration of that term. He baraz ra, uh, a word that is used over 400 times in the Old Testament. It's uh, almost always translated evil. At least three-fourths of the time, it's translated evil. Sometimes it's translated calamity, as here. Sometimes devastation. Sometimes destruction. I mean, this is the word that is used any time in the Old Testament. Something absolutely horrible happens. A city is devastated. The people are killed in what takes place. That's raw. So this, this term is used always in the Old Testament for the most horrible things that take place. Now, hear the word of the Lord, my friends. I am not making this up. This is the word of God to which we submit. Amen? We submit our hearts and minds to what God tells us. We do not correct God. We are not in a position where we tell God this cannot be. When he declares it is, he tells us, I'm the one who creates raw. Now, obviously, how he does this 
is a, is a, is a mystery ultimately. But, but what we do know is that it indicates his absolute control over all evil that takes place as well as all good. Now let me help you with this for just a moment. I mean, j just think for example of, I, I, you know, ha having Rachel here, Rachel here reminds me of 2008, February 2008 in Jackson, Tennessee. Rachel was a student then at Union University and uh, she was there during a, a tornado that hit that campus, devastated the dormitories. Rachel was a, a uh, RA at the time, resident assistant, is that what it's called? <laughs> sorry, sorry, sweetheart, an RA. And, uh, and so she had responsible responsibility to get a group of girls together and make sure that they were in the safest place in the building and the like. And that, that tornado devastated that campus, Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. And uh, uh, I mean, about 1,200 students were in those dormitories at 10 o'clock at night when that tornado hit. Two-story dorms, the top floors of those dorms collapsed down to the bottom. And when the, when the rescue workers got there, they told President Dockery to expect hundreds of deaths as they began to clear the rubble. Here's the truth. Not one Union student died. And the stories are incredible of the meticulous handiwork of God in protecting. My very favorite story was one I heard right away there, because I was teaching down there at the time, so I, I uh, was able to see shortly after the tornado took place what had happened. This one story was amazing. This freshman boy, I mean, it could have been me. I mean, just typical, you know, freshman, freshman idiot, you know, that's... that's us, us boys, when we're that, when we're that age, he, he hears and sees this tornado coming, and what does he do? He grabs his video camera, you know, so he's videotaping this thing at the window on the, on the main level of his dormitory, and has no idea how strong this tornado is, and all of a sudden, boom, this tornado just smashes the, the window that he is uh, taping out of, Glass flies everywhere. The sofa that is in front of him goes to the ceiling, turns over, and comes back down and pins him in the ground under cushions. Under cushions. And then the entire second floor, all of the cement, everything that is up there, boom, comes crashing down on that sofa. Now, it took six hours to get him out of there, but you know what? He was fine. I mean, it's amazing. The meticulous handiwork of God to bring that tornado, yes, he did, and to spare, in this case, in his mercy, to spare the lives of every single student on that campus. Remarkable. Now, let me just ask you this question. Consider a tornado uh, that, that uh, we're, we're, we're thinking of at this moment. If God is omnipotent, and we know he is, he has all power, and God is omniscient, he knows everything that is happening, right? Then wouldn't you have to say at the very minimum that God permitted that tornado to hit the campus at Union University when he could have prevented it from happening? Don't you have to say that? I mean, what's the alternative? You would have to deny the omnipotence of God. He can't change it, right? Or the omnipotence omnipotence of God or the omniscience of God. He wasn't aware of what was happening. I mean, honestly, is, do you want to say that? That God is, 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 is either not omniscient or he's not omnipotent? 
as long as you affirm that God knows everything that is taking place and he has the power at any instant that he chooses to, to redirect that, to stop it, to do anything what he, that he wants with that tornado, you have to say, at bare minimum, he permits this tornado to do exactly what it does when at any moment he could prevent it. He is sovereign over what happens. He is in control. So, but, and here, here's one other thing to remember on this. That the character of God, though he, you know, here's our spectrum, right? All good over here, all evil over here. And he controls both sides of the spectrum. Though God controls both good and evil, God is good. And in no respect is he evil. It is so crucial to see this. Here's the tendency, my friends. The tendency is to think, think, well, if God controls both good and evil, then he must be both good and evil. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. He is good, and in no respect is he evil. But he controls both good and evil. Now, here's how it works in most of our churches, though. See, see if this is not true. God is good. God is love. In no respect is God evil. So, God controls the good, but he has nothing to do with the evil that takes place out there. Wrong again. Wrong again. Do you see the mistake? Both of these are taught in the Bible. We have to affirm both. He has absolute control over every evil thing that happens. Every, every difficulty, every hardship, all suffering, all affliction is in the control of an almighty, all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing God who permits what he could prevent at any moment. But, and boy, that, it just transforms how you look at the evil over here, but he is in every way perfectly good. His goodness is, uh, is impeachable. It is, it is absolutely flawless. Goodness, justice, wisdom is true of his character. So when you put these two together, here's what you come up with. And we'll come back to this at the end of this. You realize, wow, he controls that evil out there for good purposes. That in his wisdom he has ordained, this is the pathway to what will be in the end the best, even though the pathway takes us through the hardship and the difficulty and the suffering that we face. Indeed, God is good. So, here's what I encourage you to do in light of this principle. I put it in bold right there in the middle of your handout. God fully controls both good and evil. Isaiah 45, 7. Yet God is wholly good and not evil in any respect whatsoever. So, in light of that, th those two couplets in verse 7, that God forms light and creates darkness. He causes well-being and creates calamity. Consider these two verses to put alongside Isaiah 45, 7. So on the one hand, yes, he forms light and creates darkness, but 1 John 1, 5, God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. 
You see it? We have to affirm both. Don't you have to affirm Isaiah 45, 7? God forms light and creates darkness. And you have to affirm 1 John 1, 5. God is light and in Him there is no darkness. Both are true. You, you, you don't have the option, my friend, of accepting one as correct and the other as wrong because they're both Bible. Here's the other phrase. God causes well-being, and he creates raw, right? Calamity, raw. Psalm 5:4. God takes no delight in wickedness, no, guess what word comes next? No raw evil dwells with him. So he, he baras raw. He creates raw. He has absolute control over evil, but there is no evil in God. So how important it is to uphold both of those truths about the character of God and the work of God. He is wholly good, but in his power and his wisdom and and his sovereign purposes, he controls all the things that happen, both good and evil, in the world. Okay, let me take you to another step on this. This should be capital letter B. I don't know what happened. Uh, You know, sometimes your computer takes over, doesn't it, you know, and does... Funny things, I think that's what happened. Compatibilist texts. There are texts in the Bible that, we, that I, I tend to call compatibilist texts. Reformed people refer to them this way. Of passages that indicate that in fact, yes indeed, God does control the evil that happens in the world. And there are some specific texts that indicate that. One of my favorites is the story of Joseph in Genesis 45. Look there with me if you would please. Genesis 45 Let me just remind you real quickly of the story. Jacob had these sons, uh, and and Joseph was the youngest son. Benjamin hadn't been born yet. Joseph was the youngest son, and uh, and Jacob favored Joseph and gave him this coat of many colors, gave him other privileges, and his brothers hated him for it, right? They, They were so resentful over their brother Joseph, the runt of the family who is favored by their father. And to add to their resentment, guess what God did? He gave Joseph dreams, right? Two dreams, both of which had the same point. You, my brothers, will bow down at my feet. I, I, the youngest brother in the family, uh, will, will be the one before whom you bow. And they despised Joseph for those dreams. In fact, when they saw their brother coming one day, Uh, Jacob sent him out to find out what the brothers were doing as they saw him coming. Do you remember the first thing they said when they saw him? Here comes that dreamer. Oh, they hated those dreams. Okay, so Joseph comes to them, and their inclination is to kill him. They they, they are going to, but Reuben is there, so they don't kill him. Uh, Reuben says, no, you can't do that, so they don't kill him. They put him in a pit, trying to figure out what next to do. Well, then a Midianite caravan comes along, and they think, hey, this is even better. We can make money off of him. He can suffer as a slave in Egypt and die a painful death. How good is that, they think. So they sell him into Egypt. Reuben evidently wasn't there at the time because when he comes, he says, where's Joseph? And they tell him what they did, and he is angry at them. That's when they put blood on the, on, on the coat of many colors and make it look as if Joseph has died. So Joseph then is sent to Egypt. He's a faithful man. He's obedient. He resists the temptations of Potiphar's wife. Uh, Even though he's thrown into prison, God prospers him, and he becomes second in command in Egypt. And and, and because the Lord has showed him that they're going to have 
a time of plenty, but then a time of famine, they, they put away stockpiles of food. And when the famine finally comes, other peoples come to Egypt to buy food that only the Egyptians had because God had told Joseph about the coming famine. Okay, so among those who come to get food from Egypt are Joseph's brothers. And they don't know that when they come down there, they're dealing with Joseph. Evidently, by that time, he had taken on Egyptian, probably wearing Egyptian makeup, clothing, Egyptian language. They didn't recognize him as their brother. So finally, the day comes when Joseph reveals himself to his brother. Okay, that's where we are right here in Genesis 45. Chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could not control himself before those all, all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Wouldn't you love to see the video replay of that? The look on their faces. Who? <laughs> I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. No kidding. Verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Stop. Is that true? Did they do that? Absolutely. They sold him into Egypt. Everything in the narrative leading up to this would scream, yes, they sure did. They did exactly what they wanted to do when they sold him into Egypt. Okay, keep reading. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. There it is again. That's true, right? He, they did sell him, all right? Yeah, okay. Don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me. Notice the past tense. This is not saying you sold me and then God took that and made good out of it. It's not what it says. It says, don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me for God sent me. So, th think with me for a moment here before we re read further. Do you realize then that to answer the question, how did Joseph get to Egypt? How did Joseph get to Egypt? You have to give two answers. You have to say, the brothers sold him and God sent him. That both those answers are necessary. Either one of them without the other is incomplete. They go together. This is called compatibilism. Their free agency, they sold him, somehow matches up with God sent him. So you have, as it were, two sides of a coin. Their selling him is God sending him. Huh. Now, here's the next question. Once you see compatibilism, once you see that both are involved, you have to have two answers to the question, how did this happen? How was Christ put on the cross? That's another passage we'll come to in a minute here. How was Christ put on the cross? Wicked men put him there. Is that it? Is that the whole biblical answer? Are you kidding? God put him there. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53, 10. So, you, so once you see you have to have two answers, how did this happen? Now, the next question is, does one of those two agencies, we've got human agency, divine agency, both involved, is one of those agencies primary? Okay, keep reading. 
So don't be angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in this land these two years, and there's still five years in which neither plowing nor harvesting. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. Stop. Think. What gets left out here in verse 7? The brothers. The brothers' action, it's dropped out. So here's a good hint at least, a strong hint on our question, does one of these agencies, we've got human agency, the brothers did it, divine agency, God sent him, does one of these agencies have primacy? Huh. Well, if the brothers drop out, it kind of looks like the divine agency is the primary agent, right? Okay, now verse 8 nails it, absolutely nails it. Here now Joseph says, now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Wow, that's how strong the primary agency of God is that ultimately it was God's doing. They did then exactly what God ordained they do. Their selling Joseph was in fact the sending of Joseph to Egypt by God. Now whether we can comprehend exactly how all this works my friends, to be faithful to the word of God, we have to declare both are true. Both are true. Somehow it is true that their selling of Joseph, and they did so freely. They did, so, they did exactly what they wanted to do. They, they acted out of their own free wills. Their selling Joseph into Egypt, doing exactly what they wanted, was fulfilling God's will to send Joseph to Egypt. So this compatibilism is an amazing thing to behold. Isaiah 10, you know, I, I won't take time to go through that passage with you as much as I would love to, but, but just for the sake of time. But please, would, would you read Isaiah 10 beginning at verse 5 and read through the rest of that chapter. Isaiah 10, verse 5, through the rest of that chapter and read it slowly and carefully. And notice two agencies. <laughs> Assyria is an agent, uh, but, but God is the one who uses Assyria uh, to bring judgment against his people. So, so look at that carefully and you'll see it there. Now the last one I want you to see though is Christ himself that I alluded to before. Acts 2 is the statement from Peter on the day of Pentecost in verse 23, Acts 2.23, where Peter says this, concerning Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So how do we answer the question, who put Jesus on that cross? You have to say here, godless men did it. And you have to say, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God did it. Dual agency. Do you see it? And a single answer to the question is insufficient, is inadequate. You can't say just wicked men did it. You can't say just God did it. You have to say wicked men did it and God did it. Second question, does one have primacy? Well, what does it indicate in that verse? Delivered up by the predetermined plan. So you realize what they did in time fulfilled what God ordained in eternity. You see it? What they did in time fulfilled what God ordained from eternity. So which one has primacy? God's agency does, right? Okay, look also at chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. And you see it there very clearly as well. This again from Peter. 
He says, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now look at this, verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Pretty clear, isn't it? You've got dual agency, don't you? This is compatibilism. These two things are compatible. Free agents do it. God does it. These two things go together. The free agents, in this case, are, is pretty expansive. He, he mentions two individuals, Herod, Herod and Pontius Pilate. So what these two individuals do in the judgments that they make, guess what? They fulfill what God preordained. The judgment of Herod, the judgment of Pilate, fulfills what God had ordained. Isn't that what this text says? To do whatever your, your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So yes, what Herod did, what Pilate did, then what the Gentiles did, the Romans, what the Romans did, what the Jewish leaders did, in all cases, individuals and groups of people, in all the things that took place that resulted in putting Christ on that cross, they fulfill what your hand preordained predestined to take place. So dual agency, that's pretty clear, but one has primacy, doesn't it? That is the human agents carry out what the divine agent preordained to take place. What they do in history fulfills what God had ordained in eternity. So my friends, we have such amazing examples in the Bible. Uh, honestly, I've gone through my Bible, there, there are about a hundred, easily a hundred Oh, more than that, 150 examples like these of compatibilist texts that are just incredible to, to observe the, the ways in which God controls what happens, and yet free creatures do what they do out of their freedom responsibly, and, and, and uh, out of their freedom, they do what they most want, and they are responsible for what they do. Okay, so we've seen in the Bible these spectrum texts. God has control of both good and evil, complete control of both. And this is manifest in some of these passages that indicate that while human beings carry out these wicked things, and boy, those are wicked, aren't they? Selling Joseph into Egypt, that was wicked. Putting Christ on the cross, that is the most wicked thing that has happened in the history of the universe to crucify the innocent Son of God. That, that makes everything else pale in comparison to the, the, the horror of that event. So what they, they do in their wickedness, God ordains in His wisdom and from eternity. All right, let's move now to Roman numeral three, answering the problem of evil. How, how should we as Christians think about this issue of the problem of evil. And really it has three parts to the answer. Three parts to the answer. First of all, is this argument from compatibilist freedom. Namely, that in our moral choosing, we always do what we most want. That's, how, that's what I understand freedom to be. Let me just pause there for a moment. We always do what we most want is our freedom. Some people, in fact, many people think that freedom is this. That freedom is... When you choose one thing, you could have chosen otherwise. You choose A, you could have chosen B. In other words, at the moment you make your choice, freeze the moment, all the circumstances being just what they are, you choose A. Well, you're only free in choosing A if you could have chosen B. Here's the problem with that notion of freedom. 
that if, if when you choose A, if all the reasons that there are for choosing A would be also the identical reasons or set of reasons for instead choosing B, then what answer is, to their question, what answer is there to the question, why did you choose A instead of B or B instead of A? Do you see the problem? So there, it, it results in, if you hold this view, sometimes called libertarian freedom, sometimes called contra-causal freedom, this view that we have a power of contrary choice. When we choose one thing, we have the power to choose otherwise. The problem with that is it ends up with our freedom being arbitrary. There's no reason for why we choose any one thing that we do because anything we choose, at the moment we choose it, we could just as well have chosen this. So any reason for choosing one thing is the identical reason for choosing its opposite. How does it make sense that the fellow who pu pulled the trigger pulled the trigger for the same, very same reason for which he did not pull the trigger? And the answer is it's ludicrous. It is an absolutely bankrupt notion of freedom that is the prevalent view of freedom that is out there in our culture. But freedom is not that. It is rather we are free when we choose according to what we most want, our highest desire. Our, 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 our strongest inclination. This comes, by the way, from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, if any of you are interested in this, his treatise on the freedom of the will is one of his most profound writings. It's not easy. I mean, I can just tell you right up front, it is not easy, but it is worth working through. It's a, it's a very, very uh, uh, intricately argued thesis on the nature of our freedom as a freedom of inclination. We choose what we most want. So, if in fact, in our moral choosing, we always choose what we most want, while God regulates the conditions of our choosing, God can control the outcome, and yet we bear responsibility. Think again with me for, uh, of Joseph. If God can control the, the, the circumstances of the selling of Joseph into Egypt. So, so what does God control? Well, God controls giving Joseph the dreams, knowing what the brothers are going to think when Joseph tells them about those dreams. They're going to resent him all the more. Now, now, now you know, so, so God, God does that knowing this will have this response in them that they'll resent their brother even more. God is the one who is in control of getting Joseph out there to the brothers. He's the one who regulates the fact that Reuben, the oldest brother, is present when the, the plot is to kill Joseph, right? So the plot is to kill Joseph, but Reuben is there, so they don't do it. But Reuben is absent when the plot is to sell him to the Midianites. You see how God controls the circumstances so that what they do, they do freely. That is, they do what they most want and God has controlled exactly what takes place. So, indeed, with this freedom of inclination, this notion of freedom of inclination, we can understand how it can be true that God controls what takes place while we do that freely. Here's the second step in answering the problem of evil uh, from a biblical vantage point. It's called the greater good defense. The greater good defense. God has wise and perfect purposes for all that he has made and to the magnification of his glory. In his infinite wisdom and holiness, he has decided that a universe with evil as well as good 
was necessary for these purposes to be accomplished. Now, I, I, you know, I'm just going to acknowledge right up front right now, for many of you, reading that sentence is probably shocking, pr- probably difficult for you to hear this. But think with me for a moment. Uh, let me read that last sentence again of this point. In His infinite wisdom and holiness, God decided that a universe with evil as well as good was necessary for these purposes to be accomplished. Think with me for a moment. If God's ultimate purpose, which I think is the ultimate purpose of God in the Bible, is to put His Son, the, 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 the eternal Son of the Father, who becomes incarnate, and put His Son in the highest place above all things, both as Savior and Judge, what do both of those functions of the Son require that there be on the earth over which he is Savior and judge. Sin, evil, has to be there. It is impossible for God to fulfill the purposes that he has with his son, uh, in, in putting his son over all things to accomplish that unless his son is Savior of those who have sinned uh, and, and judges those others who have sinned and deserve that judgment. So, so for that ultimate purpose of exalting his son and displaying the glory of who he is as God, it cannot happen apart from there being evil in this world. So, you know, I, I, again, I think for some of you, you probably haven't heard it put this way before. So it, it, it's a, a little bit jarring perhaps. But sin coming into the world was part of God's plan A. Part of God's plan A. It is not the case that when sin had happened in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, God went, oh no, what do I do now? How do we know that? How do we know that was not the case? That in fact that sin was part of plan A. How about a passage like Ephesians 1.4? He chose us for salvation. He chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him? When did his election of us take place? Before he had created anything. And he looked upon us and saw us in his mind's eye, saw us in our sin and and chose us from, from, from that sinful condition to be in Christ so that we would be holy and blameless before him. When did he ordain for his son to come and die for sin? Before the creation of the world. This is 1 Peter 1.20. Before the foundation of the world, he foreknew his son. That is, he foreloved, forefavored his son to be the one who would come before the foundation of the world. You see it? So the plan of God is a plan that, that goes back into eternity past before he created the world and he planned for what has happened in this world that includes the sin and the evil that is here, that his salvation and judgment, the magnification of his attributes of mercy and justice might be shown over the evil that has happened in the world. Um, I, I know we're running short on time, but I just want to give you an illustration here that I think will help. It's an, the illustration is to illustrate how it is that God could plan for there to be this evil and sin in the world 
And when he could overcome it, he, he could, he could for, for example, he could save everyone. I don't know if you've struggled with the fact that God chooses some to be saved and not all. I, I imagine most of us in here have struggled with that. But this is what the Bible teaches clearly. He cho chooses some to be saved. All of us deserve condemnation. The fact that he chooses some is merely grace, is, is surely grace and mercy because all of us deserve condemnation. But, but he, the illustration then is to show how God can choose some to be saved and not others, how he can choose that there be evil in the world and, and, uh, and that bring destruction to some when he could make it otherwise. The illustration is a true story uh, that happened during World War II. Some of you know this story, I'm sure. Uh, during World War II, uh, Hitler at one point developed a de an encoding device by, by which he would send out messages to his frontline troops and his U-boats and so on. He would send out messages encoded. And they would have kind of a typewriter-like machine by, by which they would decode the messages. Uh, the English called this the Enigma. Uh, the Brits called it the Enigma, this machine. Well, the Brits didn't have one of these machines, uh, and so they developed their own. It took them a long time to develop this. Some brilliant British scientists, along with some help from some Dutch scientists, developed their own Enigma. So now they were intercepting Hitler's uh, messages to his frontline troops, decoding them, and telling Churchill what, what Hitler was planning. And of course, Hitler didn't know that Churchill was getting this information decoded. Well, one day, after you know, Churchill had realized how incredibly valuable this information was, one day he picked up the phone and the scientists told him that they had just decoded a message uh, that, that, that was uh, indicating that in three days, Hitler was, was going to send over a squadron of bombers to bomb the city of Coventry, which is about uh, 20 miles north and uh, west of London. Uh, there was a munitions factory right outside the city, so that was probably one of the reasons it was targeted. So, Churchill, of course, put the phone down. His instinct was, pick up the phone, call the mayor of Coventry, evacuate the city, save the people of Coventry, but he never made that call. Three days later, just as he knew, planes came over from Germany, flew over Co Coventry, dropped bombs, you know, just horrible destruction that took place. Uh, you know, if you go to Coventry today, it's not one of the quaint little towns in England because most of the buildings that are there were built in the 50s, not the 1750s, the 1950s. And it's just, you know, it, it looks like 1950s architecture uh, because the whole town had to be rebuilt. Now, there, there's even film footage of, of uh, Churchill walking the streets of Coventry. I've seen this on PBS a PBS special, film footage of Churchill walking the streets of Coventry right after the bombing, corpses are still on the ground. And those people don't know that he knew this was going to take place and he didn't do anything about it. Why? Well, back in those days, you, you didn't send in bombs from 500 miles away out in sea, you know, Scud missiles. You, you flew right over, sighted down, and you would see what was happening down there. If those bombers sighted down and saw that the city had been evacuated, what would they conclude? Huh, he intercepted the message. Ah, an encoded message. Oh, 
they must have a decoding machine. And so Churchill judged that the war effort was at stake. Winning the war was at stake in whether he saved those people or not. So here's the point of the illustration. Is it possible that something is so great, so glorious, so incredibly important that in order to achieve it, these things that otherwise you would do, would he normally, under other circumstances, want to save the people of Coventry? Well, of course he would. But given these purposes, these goals, the, these incredibly important uh, 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 ends that, that Churchill has in mind for winning the war, he cannot do that and save the people of Coventry. And I think something like this is true as God looks at the world that he has made to accomplish these purposes means there is sin in the world, there is evil in the world, but he knows it is worth it because of the greater goals that are accomplished. And I think, my friends, if we struggle with that, I think we just have to let it rest before God and wait till we are in his presence in heaven. I, I just am confident that when the, the, uh, the, you know, sin is removed and we see the purposes and plans of God much more fully then than we do now, we will say, yes, of course, it could not have been otherwise. It was done perfectly well, even though we struggle with it now. Okay, finally, last point here, the asymmetry of God's action toward good and evil respectively. This is another aspect of the answer to the problem of evil is that the way God acts toward good is different than how, how he acts toward evil. God brings about good directly out of his own nature. After all, where, where does good reside? In God and in God alone. God is good. There is no goodness that is not God's goodness. So anything good that happens out there, where did it come from? From him, okay? But he brings about evil indirectly through his specific permission of just those things which he could, if he so chose, also prevent. God retains equal and meticulous control of both good and evil, though each is brought about differently. See, the reason this is important is because if you say God brings about evil the same way he brings about good, here's the problem. When he brings about good, isn't he praiseworthy for the good because he brought it about? Yes. So how do you avoid saying he brings about evil, so is he not morally blameworthy? Yeah, see, here's the problem. So there has to be an asymmetry. The, the way in which God acts toward good is in a direct fashion. He causes the good as it comes out of himself. But in relation to evil, he specifically permits what he could prevent, controlling the circumstances, and by that knowing exactly what will take place and, and uh, fulfilling his purposes through it. But he's not the moral agent accomplishing it. Okay, let me end with this last point, Roman numeral four. The problem of evil versus the problem of goodness. Now, we've spent the whole hour here talking about the problem of evil. But my friends, guess what? The problem God faces is not the problem of evil. He faces the problem. We, we think the big problem is the problem of evil. We think, boy, we've got God in the dock, you know, the British way of saying on trial. We, we've, we've got God, you know, on trial for this evil that's in the world. This is not God's problem. God's problem is the problem of goodness. Read with me. 
The former problem, the former uh, problem of evil is the big problem as we see things. But the latter problem, the problem of goodness, is the real problem that God faces. What is that problem? How can God show kindness and goodness to those who deserve only His everlasting judgment? This is God's problem. He looks at all of us created in Adam and fallen, and He says, you all deserve everlasting condemnation. There's only one thing we do deserve, my friends. Take this into your heart and think about it in this, in this entitlement crazed culture we live in. Take this into your heart and think deeply. We are entitled to one thing and one thing only before God. We deserve, we've earned it the old-fashioned way. We deserve everlasting judgment. So how? This, this is the problem God faces. He looks at us in our sin and he realizes we must, our sin must be judged. And so in order to love us, he must devise a means by which our sin is judged in another. Well, who could that other be? And the only answer is, the only answer is his own son. He sends his son to do what only his son can do, and that's bear our sin in his body on the cross so that the judgment we deserve is paid by him so that then he can show to us the kindness and the favor and the generosity and the lavish love that he has for us which we can now receive by faith, by faith in Christ. So, goodness, my friends, it's amazing. When you look at the cross of Christ, this is God's answer to the problem of goodness. How can I show good to people who deserve condemnation? Answer, my son. My son will bear your sin so that by faith in him, I may now show you the goodness I long for you to have. Isn't God amazing? What grace, what mercy, what kindness to us who deserve none of it. None of it. What a gracious God. Well, let's pray together, and then uh, Pastor Bill, we'll, we can do some questions together. Father, thank you for our time, being able to think through the problem of evil this evening. It is a very difficult problem. We know it, but Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word that gives us assurance that you, Lord God, are doing all things good, all things right. Your justice, your wisdom, your goodness are impeachable. And we thank you, Lord, that we can, as your people, can trust your heart even when we cannot understand your ways. We know your character, and so we can be confident it is right and good. We pray these things now in the name of Christ, our risen Savior and Lord. Amen.